I'm going to let you know, today's a little PG-13. Mainly in your mind. Meaning I won't say anything that will be inappropriate. It's going to be all upon you. Does that make sense? All right. Here, here we go. Uh, we are in our series on joy, and we are in chapter 3. And we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 today. And we are looking through, again, this book that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, this Roman colony that he went to, uh, God had called him to that area of Macedonia. And in doing so, this is the place, by the way, in which he is put into prison. And he sings praises, and there's an earthquake. And he brings the, Philippi, the, the uh, jailer of the Philippian church, starts right there. Also, Lydia, the woman they meet down at the river. Those two people become really the nexus of what becomes the church in Philippi. And as we looked at last week specifically, this church has not only supported Paul, sent them one of their best and this guy named Epaphroditus, but financially taking care of him as he's under house arrest. And so he just got done saying to them that, hey, you guys have been phenomenal. Thank you for what you've been doing and supporting me, and, but I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. When we get to China, uh, to verse 3, you're going to find out he uses the word finally. It's like Paul doesn't know how in the letter, because this is not the first finally you're going to find out in this book. Here we go. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Remember, joy is the kind of the underlying. There really, you can't get that many verses in the book of Philippians without the word joy or rejoice. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And what he's really trying to do is saying to them that this idea of joy and where joy comes from, if that is your focus, to have a joy then what happens is these things, these things that can divide us, these things that separate us, these oppositions that come against us, they don't have their impact because your joy is in the Lord, which means whatever's happening, if your joy is in Him, these other things don't have the ability to knock you off stride, don't have the ability to come in and do things that would, would hurt you. And He goes, look, to write you the same things is no trouble. I'm going to keep reminding you because these things are basic. One of the things you found out since we've come together, we keep telling you that we are a church that wants you to reach your inner circle. We don't stop that. I hope that 10 years from now, there's somebody standing on this stage going, reach your inner circle. Because that is basic. It doesn't get any more than that. I hope that the existence of Cedars will be a church that equips the saints for works of ministry. That you're being equipped to go out and do what you are called to do. These are the things that we're going to continue to bring up. These are the things we're going to continue to do because that's where God has called us. And by the way, it is safe for you to remember the focus. And folks, let me say, we've all been there. Have you ever been in an argument with your spouse that started over here but ended over here and you can't remember what started over here? No? Just me? Good. So the concept is, is that Sometimes we go, no, I'm supposed to be about the joy in the Lord. I'm supposed to be doing this, but no one reminds us. And before we do it, we're over here doing all this busy work. And we forget what our purposes are. Or we get into other things and we forget, wait a minute, it really just comes down to why I love Jesus Christ and do I love my neighbors myself. Like I think sometimes what happens is, is that we, 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 we get into this, we remember the very first reasons why we got into something. 
So he goes, look, it's not wrong for me to write you. Matter of fact, it's safe for you to be reminded to the thing that you should be rejoicing in the Lord. That's what he reminds him to. Now, it's going to take a real quick turn here in just a second. And in doing so, there's an issue that he wants to address. And by the way, it is huge. Here we go. Chapter 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, what are we talking about here? Well, first of all, we got to deal with one little situation. Paul does something really unique um, here. Uh, he flips the narrative. It was a commonality amongst the Jews to call Gentiles dogs. And by the way, it was so much in, this is going to become uncomfortable a bit, it was so much in the vernacular that even Jesus speaks to this way in Matthew 15, 26, when the woman who was a Gentile was asking for healing, and he said, and answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, here's what you need to understand. This idea of the, the Jews and their bloodline, do not miss that they took it to a level of the fact that they were God's chosen people and did not take a little bit of pride in that. And looked at other people far more differently. And so what's interesting is what Paul is doing is, is that instead of calling Gentiles dogs, he's going to be calling these Jews dogs. Who are doing something that he thinks is fairly inappropriate. So let's go back. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So what are we talking about? We're talking about circumcision. Now, we're just not talking about circumcision for circumcision's sake. We're talking about the fact that what has happened is, is there's a group of people that are doing something that by their, by their standard, they think is fine, but is actually insidious. They think it's okay, but actually is an issue. And so Paul uses graphic language and calls it mutilating the flesh. It's pretty graphic. He's not handling it with kick gloves. Because these groups of people, what they're saying is, for you to be fully Christian, you must then become fully under the law of Moses. Thereby, you must be circumcised. There, once you've been, been circumcised, then you're okay to then come to this place of Christianity. And all he's done is throwing a huge barrier in front of people. Does that make sense? A step that was never meant to be there. A step that was not needed and not important. But this group is telling people, oh, no, 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 you're not really truly a believer unless you've gone through this physical process. Once you've gone through this physical process, that is a gateway to then you having access to Christ. The problem is, it's not true. And add something that at its very core becomes an issue. Now, I want you to know this issue was dealt with. I'm going to be reading out of Acts chapter 15. I want you to know I'm going to, I'm going to go through two, uh, three verses. And by the way, it is a whole chapter where you should read about the debate of what happened over the issue of circumcision when it came to the, to the Gentiles. It says this in verse 5 of Acts 15, 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to, order to keep them, I'm sorry, order them to keep the law of Moses. So the Pharisees, who are all about rules, all about laws, all about keeping all of these things, rose up and said, huh, it's necessary. Matter of fact, they must have this happen. The apostles 
and the elders, this elders group, by the way, is the eldership of the first church in Jerusalem, which, by the way, Jesus' physical brother James would have been the lead pastor. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. What do we do? We got Gentiles who are coming to Christ. Should they have to, like the Pharisees said, become circumcised? There's a whole debate that goes on. We jump all the way down to verse 19. I'm sorry. And it says, it says this. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. They made the decision. Does that make sense? Paul went to, by the way, Paul didn't make that decision on his own. Paul didn't go rogue. Paul went back to the apostles and the elders of the church, brought them the issue. Decision was made. Paul has the answer. So when he's making these statements, this has already been decided by the leadership of the apostles and the elders. Does that make sense? But that is still not stopping this group that is saying to people, hey, you're not fully Christian unless you've done this physical act. What is the issue here? Because the issue for us, honestly, is not circumcision. The reality is it's a common practice in America. Not that everybody has done, but it's a common practice that is done. So what are we really talking about? And, 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 and is it this big issue? The fact is, is that it's this. In Galatians 5.2, Galatians 5.2, Paul says this. By the way, notice the, again the urgency of his statement. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So here you have, in Philippians, he calls it a mutilating of the flesh. In Galatians, he says, if you do this, it will be no advantage advantage to you. So let me say something. Because here's what we do. I'm telling you as a people, we do it, and it's been found out through history. If I give you an act to do, and you accomplish that act, there is a great many of us that then go, job done, because the act is done, therefore I don't have to do any more. Does that make sense? Job done. So the thing is, if you take on circumcision, you'll do what the, what the Jews said. The Jews said, because we're circumcised with the family of God we're in, right? Which then, then gave them this confidence that they really they didn't have to really keep up with anything. They didn't really have to do anything because they had this physical thing done to them. So they're in. Now, I want to be very, very gentle as I walk into this. I have a lot of you that have come from the Catholic Church. I've spoken to a lot of people in the Catholic Church who have said to me, The difficulty that I experienced, this is their quote, I experienced as a young one, is once I was baptized as a child and had my first communion, I was in, done, nothing else I needed to do. That was, listen to me, it's not what I'm saying the Catholic Church says, that was the impression they took away from it. Are you with me with that? I'm not coming after the Catholic Church. I think there are Catholic Church that are trying so hard to bring Christ out to places. Do you understand what I'm saying? But because there's such a focus... Um, first bapti- um, on, on, your, on your baby baptism and your first communion, that once that's done, a lot of people said, hey, I'm in, done. And then what we have is people who then never then really had a relationship with Jesus. They had what they had was a relationship with those acts. They felt those stamped the document, they were done. Have you t- 
talked with people? Have you felt that? Have you experienced what I'm talking about here? That is the thing that Paul is fighting over in this issue. If you take on Philippian church and act, many of your people will say, well, once I've done the act, I'm good. And you've actually hurt them. Because they won't see the need to go on and have what is more important, which is the relationship. One of our issues that is before us is we can do that with, the, with baptism. Oh, I got baptized, right? I'm done. We as a church and churches that I'm aware of work really hard to say, no, 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 no. This baptism has no power to solidify you into a moment. It is you being obedient to God to understand all the symbolism and it should be a launching pad into a bigger relationship, not the end result of something that's going on. Does that make sense? Hopefully we are doing that. We are not making baptism. Once you baptize, you're in, done, we got you wet. Because I'm telling you what, if that was all there was, we are working too hard in the wrong areas. I'm not kidding. I got lined up kids, got them all wired up, got them all wet and been done. Does that make sense? Move on. But that is not what we're called to do. We are called to bring people to a place where they understand, no, this is a beautiful picture of what happens in our lives when we come to Jesus and you are born again and you get started to this new life. Does that make sense? I'm not saying anything against baptism. I just don't want to give baptism a place where somebody goes, well, I was baptized, therefore I'm done. See you at Christmas, see you at Easter, see you in heaven. This is what Paul is so concerned with. Because he watched it in his own people, the Jews. They were circumcised of a bloodline, done. Now he's going to make that point pretty incredibly here in just a second. In Colossians 2, 11 through 14, watch what he says this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh and by the circumcision of Christ. So he goes, look, You've gone through circumcision. You didn't need to go through a physical, fleshly. God came in and circumcised your heart, made you sensitive to him, has done these steps. But it wasn't done by human hands. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith. Notice the focus is not on the baptism, it's that you were raised with him through faith. And the power, powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are, who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, and I love this, nailing it to the cross. So he took this law and said, no, Jesus has fulfilled it, and I'm going to nail this to the cross. And by the way, your circumcision is a spiritual one. You don't need something that's going to happen at the hands of another man. Because what he wants, listen, more importantly, is a relationship with you that comes through your faith in him, not from an act that you do. Again, if the goal was just to dunk people, we're working too hard in the wrong direction. We want people that understand that their baptism is the beginning of a journey that will take them to the end of their days. A journey of seeking him and being close to him. And so Paul, folks, I've only read two verses so far in the book of Philippians. I know you're fine. We're going to make it. But Paul is making this point, and we're only talking about one verse. Look what he says. Now let's go back. Galatians 5.12. This is for my own benefit and for my own humor at this point. 
Galatians 5.12 says, I wish those who, uns- who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is his attitude. Well, if a little is okay, then all of it should be great. He's trying to play on the idea is, if they're making such a big deal about a little thing, that I wish they would go ahead and just do it all the way. They'd be really holy then. I'll let you sit with that for a while. He's trying so desperately to get them to understand this is not the focus. So desperately to say, look, if they're going to make this such a big deal, let's go. Let's make this happen. And by this humor, he's trying to say to them, look, we cannot die on this hill. So let's go back. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's verse 3. He tells them, look, guys, don't worry about this. Those who come to tell you that you are only going to be holy once you do this, forget all that. When you came to him, you are the circumcision. He did that in your heart. He did that in your life. It did not have to happen at the hands of another person. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So the issue is this. Paul goes, okay, you guys want to play a game? Let's play a big game. If this whole thing is what you have confidence in the flesh, if they're going to tell you it's all about whether or not you got circumcised and became fully Jewish, let me tell you something. Let's play a little game of comparison. If they want to talk about having confidence in the flesh, I'm going to put myself up. I'm going to put myself up. If they want to talk this game, let's play. I'll play the game. Here we go. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, big to come out of the tribe of Benjamin. Huge to come out of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes, by the way, a Hebrew of, Hebrew, Hebrew of Hebrews and as to the law, a Pharisee. You want credentials? Here are my credentials. I'm of Israel. I'm of Benjamin. I was circumcised, circumcised on the eighth day. By the way, I'm a Pharisee. I kept the rules. I kept the laws. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was on the fast track to being one of the greats in this when Christ got a hold of Paul. Next, he goes on. As to zeal, there's a lot of people that were against what the Christian was doing. I went out and started persecuting the church. That's how much I believed in what the law was about. You want to get into comparison again? You want to get into something that says whether or not it's about the flesh? I put my flesh on the line. I have papers on the road to Damascus to go put people in jail when Jesus got a hold of me. Righteousness, as righteousness, under the law, blameless. He kept the law. So he goes, look, those people that tell you this, you want to compare this whole thing of flesh, have them compare it to me. And this is what he says. This is where he drops the mic. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Because I'm not playing this game anymore. All this stuff that I can put on my resume and go here, 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 here. All of it gone for him. All of it gone for his sake. Folks, this is Paul's message to the church in Philippi. And here's what I want to echo to the church in Cedars. It is not about what we do. It is about who we love and who loves us and whether or not we're his child or not. There's people that want to get up and say, but I helped for six hours. I helped for eight hours. I set up 15 tables. I set up 20 tables. 
what are we doing these things for? There were people that served all this weekend. I got to watch people serve all this weekend. You know what I saw? No one was saying, look, hope someone sees me serve. What I saw was people giving gifts to Jesus Christ. That's what I saw. And when that heart is there, then it's not about comparison. It's about how do we glorify his name? How do more people get loved? How do more people hear of Jesus? How do they get released from the bondage that they have? When our focus becomes into see what I do and see what I'm about and see my credentials and see my laundry list, we miss it. We completely miss it. And so Paul goes, look, I had a list, and I threw it all out for his sake. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Let me tell you something. That's not just knowing about Christ. He goes, I want to know Christ. My fear in a lot of churches is we do a lot about wanting to know about Christ. That's not what he calls us to. He calls us to know Christ. To be in his presence. To be near him. To walk with him. To know his heart. I use this illustration all the time because it's what I get. I have people that tell me I walk like my father. I don't see it. I know how my dad walks. I don't think I walk like him. But here's what's funny. My boys walk like my father. I don't know how that happened. They seem to be with me more than him, but they seem to walk a little bit like him. So here's what happens. I walk like my dad because, honestly, I spend a lot of time with my dad, and I'm hoping my boys walk like me because hopefully they spend some time with me, but at the long run, I want them more to walk like Jesus than anyone else. And you know the people that when you watch them walk, you go, they walk like Jesus. And you know what I mean by walk? They act like him. They've picked up his heart. They're loving people. They're putting their pride aside. They're becoming humble. They are doing these things. That's what I'm talking about. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. This is Paul not putting confidence in his circumcision. This is Paul not confident in his uh, uh, birthright as, as one who comes from the tribe of Benjamin. This is not Paul coming out of this place as a place of Pharisees. He gave all that to say. He goes, you know what I want to do? I want to know Christ more. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul found Christ and said, it is okay that all this goes away because he's far better. I lost it all for him. And there's this heart, you can hear it, and I would do it again. Watch them, and I count them as rubbish. The first time I heard my youth pastor talk about that he looked up a Greek word was this word rubbish. And we all giggled. That word rubbish, when you actually look at it, is, um, is poop. That's the dung pile. That's where they put that stuff. That's where that word comes from. This is what, this is what Paul's doing. All of this that defined me, all the letters after my name, my address and the car I drove and all that stuff, I consider because 
It doesn't compare. And that becomes our battle, folks. But I like my stuff. It can't compare. I want my stuff. It can't compare. It's just stuff. In order that I may gain Christ. He goes, if I give it all away and have nothing and Christ is by my side, I got everything. I got everything. Verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. See, because again, if you give me rules and I can keep the rules, then that becomes me being right because I kept the rules. That's on me. That's my power. You told me not to go on the grass. That's the sign. I didn't go on the grass. Woohoo! Look how awesome I am. I didn't go on the grass. And by the way, every rule is like that. Look what I did because I followed the rules. Who are my rule followers? Come on, get them up there, rule followers. Thank you so much. How many of you know their rules? All right, like you're like, I don't even know if there's rules. That's me. All right. But in this process, the concept is, no, 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 no. I don't get it by following the rules. Look, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Ironically, this is what I love. The more faith I have in Christ, the more I'm following rules I don't even know that I'm following. Do you understand that? The more faith I have in Christ, the more I become like him, the more I walk like my heavenly father, the more I'm doing the rules that, by the way, I didn't want to keep when I saw the sign. And I watched it happen to you. Things that you would just struggle with now, all of a sudden they're not struggles for you. And it's not because you're following rules, all of a sudden it's becoming more like Christ. And all of a sudden now you're keeping out the grass, not because there's a sign, but because you're walking closer to your Savior. The righteousness that depends on faith. The whole thing is dependence. Folks, listen, I want to be right, or what I mean, living rightly, that's the best way to define that. I want to be living rightly because of who I'm looking at, not because of the rules I'm trying to follow. Now, I have a few minutes. It's funny, um, how many of you guys have ever apprenticed? You, uh, I can't say that word, so let's just assume I said it right. How many of you guys have, uh, have ever been where you've been like a tradesman or followed somebody, right? You ever didn't do that? Or you, someone taught you to do something, whatever? What? Apprentice? Being an apprentice? We don't like saying that word out loud. Um, so here's the deal. The whole point is if I bring in and you're my apprentice, is that you are to do what I do. The moment that you said, hey, by the way, I'm a little bit of a rebel. Kind of like do my things this whole way. I know that you're using a measuring tape and you're using like a square for building something. I'm just going to kind of eyeball it and I'm sure you're going to be okay with it. How long does that work out? The contract, verbal or non-verbal, is if I come to be an apprentice, I come to see what you have to teach me. Does that make sense? Not I come and waste your time doing whatever I want to do. I can go my own wood shop and do whatever I want to do. I come to learn from you. Does that make sense? So here's what happens. I think you need to understand that I want to have a faith 
that I go and I want to do what he has me do, not come in and make up whatever I want to do. I got the basics. I'm good. I'll just do whatever I want. God comes in and goes, no, 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 come and be like me. Not come and take what you want out of me and walk away. Come spend time with me in faith. Come time with me and I'm going to push you into these places. And it's about us depending on the one that will show us what to do. Verse 10, that I may know him. Here we go. This is about that I may know him, not about him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. By the way, just so you're aware, knowing Christ means you get to share in his sufferings. You don't get to know Jesus without understanding that you got to suffer through the process, because he ultimately had to suffer for you to be where you're at. It's not something you get to avoid, because you will truly not know the heart of Jesus until you've suffered like Jesus. You're truly not going to understand what it means to stand with people unless you've been with Jesus who have people who stood with and walk away. You need to understand it comes with the territory. You don't just get to stay on the bunny slope. You got to go where he's going. And it comes with suffering. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now here's what's funny to me. If there's anyone who I would think would not need to write that line, it is Paul. I'm going to say that again. If there is anyone who I think doesn't need to re, re, uh, write that line, it's Paul. How many guys feel like this thing, like Paul's in? You think Paul's going to heaven at this point? Like this should not be one of his concerns. It is incredible to me to the very end, Paul makes this his concern. Nothing, nothing, nothing is going to take my eyes off of getting to be with Jesus for eternity. By the way, just to prove that, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. By the way, this concept is going to come up again next week. Here's Paul, so worried that at the very end, to the finish line, till his dying breath, he keeps his eye on the prize of being with Christ. Is that our passion? And is that our focus? Back, that I, by any means possible, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection of the dead. And this is where I want to come back to. And so I don't want something like something done to your body that will make you so that you don't follow Christ and want to know him and be in relationship with him to the very bitter end. Cedars Church, may you with all your heart and all that you do follow him to the very end with your dying breath, dying breath. May Jesus receive me into your kingdom. And may we be a church, may we be a church that understands that we are not here for some act or something that is done that we feel like, oh, that did it, I'm in, I'm good, I'm golden. Paul, to the very end, is pleading that nothing would keep him from his Lord. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be a people, may we be a people that will not be kept away, 
not be kept away from eternity. Father, don't let anything that the world says that we should do or have to do or something that we feel like if we do this, that's going to make us in. None of that does. What makes us is knowing you and being to be ready so close to you that we walk like you. And that even means, yes, suffering like you. Father, Paul just tells us without anything else that all that we would hold on to in this earth, all that would give us our glory, all that we would think that would make us important, all that we would think that would make us have these things, he says they were rubbish compared to just having you. So Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, may we grab a hold of you and not let go until we see you face to face. For Father, you are worthy and you are mighty, and you are worthy to be praised. And I give you all the glory from this day and forevermore. In the name of your beautiful son, Jesus, amen.